This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Superstition of Divorce by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 8 The Vista of Divorce. The case for divorce combines all the advantages of having it both ways, and of drawing the same deduction from right or left, and from black or white. Whichever way the program works in practice, it can still be justified in theory. If there are few examples of divorce, it shows how little divorce need be dreaded. If there are many, it shows how much it is required. The rarity of divorce is an argument in favor of divorce, and the multiplicity of divorce is an argument against marriage. Now, in truth, if we were confined to considering this alternative in a speculative manner, and there were no concrete facts, but only abstract probabilities, we should have no difficulty in arguing our case. The abstract liberty allowed by the reformers is as near as possible to anarchy, and gives no logical or legal guarantee worthy of discussing. The advantages of their reform do not accrue to the innocent party, but to the guilty party, especially if he be sufficiently guilty. A man has only to commit the crime of desertion to obtain the reward of divorce. And if they are entitled to take as typical the most horrible hypothetical cases of the abuse of marriage laws, surely we are entitled to take equally extreme possibilities in the abuse of their own divorce laws. If they, when looking about for a husband, so often hit upon a homicidal maniac, surely we may politely introduce them to the far more human figure of the gentleman who marries as many women as he likes, and gets rid of them as often as he pleases. But in fact there is no necessity for us to argue thus in the abstract, for the amiable gentleman in question undoubtedly exists in the concrete. Of course he is no new figure. He is a very recurrent type of rascal. His name has been Lothario or Don Juan, and he has often been represented as a rather romantic rascal. The point of divorce reform, it cannot too often be repeated, is that the rascal should not only be regarded as romantic, but regarded as respectable. He is not to sow his wild oats and settle down. He is merely to settle down to sowing his wild oats. They are to be regarded as tame and inoffensive oats, almost as if one may say so, as Quaker oats. But there is no need, as I say, to speculate about whether the looser view of divorce might prevail, for it is already prevailing. The newspapers are full of an astonishing hilarity about the rapidity with which hundreds of thousands of human families are being broken up by the lawyers, and about the undisguised haste of the hustling judges who carry on the work. It is a form of hilarity which would seem to recall the gaiety of a gravedigger in a city swept by pestilence. But a few details occasionally flash by in the happy dance. From time to time the court is moved by a momentary curiosity about the causes of the general violation of oaths and promises, as if there might here and there be a hint of some sort of reason for ruining the fundamental institution of society. And nobody who notes these details, or considers those faint hints of reason, 
can doubt for a moment that masses of these men and women are now simply using divorce in the spirit of free love. They are very seldom the sort of people who have once fallen tragically into the wrong place and have now found their way triumphantly to the right place. They are almost always people who are obviously wandering from one place to another, and will probably leave their last shelter exactly as they have left their first. But it seems to amuse them to make again, if possible, in a church, a promise they have already broken in practice, and almost avowedly disbelieve in principle. In face of this headlong fashion it is really reasonable to ask the divorce reformers what is their attitude toward the old monogamous ethic of our civilization, and whether they wish to retain it in general, or to retain it at all. Unfortunately, even the sincerest and most lucid of them use language which leaves the matter a little doubtful. Mr. E. S. P. Haynes is one of the most brilliant and most fair-minded controversialists on that side, and he has said, for instance, that he agrees with me in supporting the ideal of indissoluble, or at least of undissolved, marriage. Mr. Haynes is one of the few friends of divorce who are also real friends of democracy, and I'm sure that in practice this stands for a real sympathy with the home, especially the poor home. Unfortunately, on the theoretic side, the word ideal is far from being an exact term, and is open to two almost opposite interpretations. For many would say that marriage is an ideal, as some would say that monasticism is an ideal, in the sense of a council of perfection. Now certainly we might preserve a conjugal idea in this way. A man might be reverently pointed out in the street as a sort of saint, merely because he was married. A man might wear a medal for monogamy, or have letters after his name similar to V.C. or D.D., let us say, L.W. for lives with his wife, or N.D.Y. for not divorced yet. We might, on entering some strange city, be struck by a stately column erected to the memory of a wife who never ran away with a soldier, or the shrine in image of a historical character who had resisted the example of the man in the new witness ballad in bolting with the children's nurse. Such high artistic hagiology would be quite consistent with Mr. Haynes' divorce reform, with remarriage after three years or three hours. It would also be quite consistent with Mr. Haynes' phrase about preserving an ideal of marriage. What it would not be consistent with is the perfectly plain, solid, secular, and social usefulness which I have here attributed to marriage. It does not create or preserve a natural institution normal to the whole community to balance the more artificial and even more arbitrary institution of the state, which is less natural, even if it is equally necessary. It does not defend a voluntary association, but leaves the only claim on life, death, and loyalty with a more coercive institution. It does not stand, in the sense I have tried to explain for the principle of liberty, in short it does not do any of the things which Mr. Haynes himself would especially desire to see done. For humanity to be thus spontaneously organized from below, it is necessary that the organization should be almost as universal as the official organization from above. The tyrant must find not one family but many families defying his power. He must find mankind not a dust of atoms, but fixed in solid blocks of fidelity. And those human groups must support not only themselves, but each other. 
in this sense what some call individualism is as corporate as communism it is a thing of volunteers but volunteers must be soldiers it is a defense of private persons but we might say that the private persons must be private soldiers the family must be recognized as well as real above all the family must be recognized by the families to expect individuals to suffer successfully for a home apart from the home that is for something which is an incident but not an institution is really a confusion between two ideas it is a verbal sophistry almost in the nature of a pun similarly for instance we cannot prove the moral force of a peasantry by pointing to one peasant we might almost as well reveal the military force of infantry by pointing to one infant i take it however that the advocates of divorce do not mean that marriage is to remain ideal only in the sense of being almost impossible they do not mean that a faithful husband is only to be admired as a fanatic the reasonable men among them do really mean that a divorced person shall be tolerated as something unusually unfortunate not merely that a married person shall be admired as something unusually blessed and inspired but whatever they desire it is as well that they should realize exactly what they do and in this case i should like to hear the criticisms in the manner of what they see they must surely see that in england at present as in many parts of america in the past the new liberty is being taken in the spirit of license as if the exception were to be the rule or rather perhaps the absence of rule this will especially be made manifest if we consider that the effect of the process is accumulative like a snowball and returns on itself like a snowball the obvious effect of frivolous divorce will be frivolous marriage if people can be separated for no reason they will feel it all the easier to be united for no reason a man might quite clearly foresee that a sensual infatuation would be fleeting and console himself with the knowledge that the connection could be equally fleeting there seems no particular reason why he should not elaborately calculate that he could stand a particular lady's temper for ten months or reckon that he could have enjoyed and exhausted her repertoire of drawing-room songs in two years the old joke about choosing the wife to fit the furniture or the fashions might quite logically return not as an old joke but as a new solemnity indeed it will be found that new religion is generally the return of the old joke a man might quite consistently see a woman as suited to the period of the hobble skirt and as less suited to the threatened recurrence of the crinoline these fancies are fantastic enough but they are not a shade more fantastic than the facts of many a divorce controversy as urged in the divorce courts and this is to leave out altogether the most fantastic fact of all the winking at widespread and conspicuous collusion collusion has become not so much an illegal evasion as a legal fiction and even a legal institution as it is admirably satirized in mr somerset maugham's brilliant play home and beauty the fact was very frankly brought before the public by a man who was eminently calculated to disarm satire by sincerity colonel wedgwood is a man who can never be too much honored by all who have any hope of popular liberties still finding champions in the midst of parliamentary corruption 
he is one of the very few men alive who have shown both military and political courage the courage of the camp and the courage of the forum and doubtless he showed a third type of social courage in avowing the absurd expedient which so many others are content merely to accept and employ it is admittedly a frank and farcical thing that a good man should find or think it necessary to pretend to commit a sin some of the divorce moralists seem to deduce from this that he ought really to commit the sin they may possibly be aware however that there are some who do not agree with them for this latter fact is the next step in the speculative progress of the new morality the divorce advocates must be well aware that modern civilization still contains strong elements not the least intelligent and certainly not the least vigorous which will not accept the new respectability as a substitute for the old religious vow the roman catholic church the anglo-catholic school the conservative peasantries and a large section of the popular life everywhere will regard the riot of divorce and remarriage as they would any other riot of irresponsibility the consequence would appear to be that two different standards will appear in ordinary morality and even in ordinary society instead of the old social distinction between those who are married and those who are unmarried there will be a distinction between those who are married and those who are really married society might even become divided into two societies which is perilously approximate to disraeli's famous exaggeration about england divided into two nations but whether england be actually so divided or not this note of the two nations is the real note of warning in the matter it is in this connection perhaps that we have to consider most gravely and doubtfully the future of our own country anarchy cannot last but anarchic communities cannot last either mere lawlessness cannot live but it can destroy life the nations of the earth always return to sanity and solidarity but the nations which return to it first are the nations which survive we in england cannot afford to allow our social institutions to go to pieces as if this ancient and noble country were an ephemeral colony we cannot afford it comparatively even if we could afford it positively we are surrounded by vigorous nations mainly rooted in the peasant or permanent ideals notably in the case of france and ireland i know that the detested and detestably undemocratic parliamentary clique which corrupts france as it does england was persuaded or bribed by a jew named naquist to pass a crude and recent divorce law which was full of the hatred of christianity but only a very superficial critic of france can be unaware that french parliamentarianism is superficial the French nation as a whole, the most rigidly respectable nation in the world, will certainly go on living by the old standards of domesticity. When Frenchmen are not Christians, they are heathens, the heathens who worship the household gods. It might seem strange to say, for instance, that an atheist like Monsieur Clemenceau has for his chief ideal a thing called piety but to understand this it is only necessary to know a little latin and a little french a short time ago as i am well aware it would have sounded very strange to represent the old religion and peasant communities either as a model or a menace it was countered a queer thing to say in the days when my friends and i first said it in the days of my youth 
when the republic of france and the religion of ireland were regarded as alike ridiculous and decadent but many things have happened since then and it will not now be so easy to persuade even newspaper readers that foch is a fool either because he is a frenchman or because he is a catholic the older tradition even in the most unfashionable forms has found champions in the most unexpected quarters only the other day dr saleby a distinguished scientific critic who had made himself the special advocate of all the instruction and organization that is called social science startled his friends and foes alike by saying that the peasant families in the west of ireland were far more satisfactory and successful than those brooded over by all the benevolent sociology of bradford he gave his testimony from an entirely rationalistic and even materialistic point of view indeed he carried rationalism so far as to give the preferences to roscommon because the women are still mammals to a mind of the more traditional type it might seem sufficient to say that they are still mothers to a memory that lingers over the legends and lyrical movements of mankind it might seem no great improvement to imagine a song that ran my mammal bids me bind my hair or i'm to be queen of the may mammal i'm to be queen of the may but indeed the truth to which he testified is all the more arresting because for him it was materialistic and not mystical the brute biological advantage as well as other advantages was with those for whom that truth was a truth and it was all the more instinctive and automatic where that truth was a tradition the sort of place where mothers are still something more than mammals is the only sort of place where they are still mammals there the people are still healthy animals healthy enough to hit you if you call them animals i also have on this merely controversial occasion used throughout the rationalistic and not the religious appeal but it is not unreasonable to note that the materialistic advantages are really found among those who most repudiate materialism the one stray testimony is but a type of a thousand things of the same kind which will convince any one with a sense of social atmosphere that the day of the peasantries is not passing but rather arriving it is the more complex types of society that are now entangled in their own complexities those who tell us with a monotonous metaphor that we cannot put the clock back seem to be curiously unconscious of the fact that their own clock has stopped and there is nothing so hopeless as a clockwork when it stops a machine cannot mend itself it requires a man to mend it and the future lies with those who can make living laws for men and not merely dead laws for machinery those living laws are not to be found in the scatter-brained skepticism which is busy in the great cities dissolving what it cannot analyze the primary laws of man are to be found in the permanent life of man in those things that have been common to it in every time and land though in the highest civilization they have reached an enrichment like that of the divine romance of cana in galilee we know that many critics of such a story say that its elements are not permanent but indeed it is the critics who are not permanent a hundred mad dogs of heresy have worried man from the beginning but it was always the dog that died we know there is a school of prigs who disapprove of the wine and there may now be a school of prigs who disapprove of the wedding for in such a case as the story of cana it may be remarked that the pedants are prejudiced against the earthly elements 
as much as or more than the heavenly elements. It is not the supernatural that disgusts them so much as the natural. And those of us who have seen all the normal rules and relations of humanity uprooted by random speculators, as if they were abnormal abuses and almost accidents, will understand why men have sought for something divine, if they wish to preserve anything human. They will know why common sense, cast out from some academy of fads and fashions, conducted on the lines of a luxurious madhouse, has age after age sought refuge in the high sanity of a sacrament. End of chapter 8